Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Brian Fishman, Director of Counterterrorism and Dangerous Organizations at Facebook, and I'm pleased to be your moderator for this program with former U.S. National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. This program is part of the club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor under President Trump, senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and author of the new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. General McMaster is one of the most celebrated modern military leaders in America. He spent 34 years in the U.S. Army, including as a captain during the Gulf War and fighting the insurgency during the war in Iraq. He then served for 13 months in the Trump White House. In his new book, Battlegrounds, General McMaster argues that American foreign policy has been misconceived, inconsistent, and poorly implemented since the end of the Cold War. He describes efforts to reassess and fundamentally shift policies while he was National Security Advisor, and he provides a pathway forward designed to improve strategic competence and complex competitions against our adversaries. Welcome, General McMaster. Hey, Brian, great to see you again. Thanks for your service to our country over so many years, and, and it's great to reconnect with you here in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure. Um, so your, your book makes, if I could characterize it, two basic claims. I think the, the first one, as, as you know, you've been getting a lot of questions about this, is in that preface, that you didn't want this to book to be political, you didn't want it to be a tell-all, and then the bulk of the, the book is, is focused on how you envision American strategy with reference to your time as national security advisor and your, and your time in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think there you're making the argument that our strategy has been unclear. We need to have more clarity and goals, and we need to have a forceful American presence in the world. Is, is that sort of, is that a fair characterization? I think so, Brian. And, and you were with me in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And and what really frustrated me in many of these missions in, in our, the wars of the 21st century for the United States is the disconnect, the disconnect between reality on the ground in those places and plans that, and, and policies and strategies that I think were based more on, on fantasy in, in Washington. And I, I tell the story in the book about my conversation with our friend Joel Rayburn at one point when we were frustrated by this disconnect in Iraq in particular. And, and he made the quip of, well, you know, we're in Iraq. But it seems like our strategy is based on my rack. And my rack is whatever people in Washington really would like it to be. And so, so I, I describe this in, in the book as, as, as a phenomenon uh, uh, that, I, that I call strategic narcissism, the tendency to define the world only in relation to us uh, and, and how we would like it to be, and therefore to neglect the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that others, including our our rivals, our adversaries, and our enemies have uh, over the over the future course of events. You, you famously, before you wrote Battlegrounds, wrote Dereliction of Duty, uh, a sort of an assessment of civil-military relations and goal-setting in and around Vietnam. Do you think that we have made the same kind of mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan? I mean, and and I guess if we have, why, why haven't we gotten better at this? You know, we've, we've studied Vietnam and those failures ad nauseum. Right. Well, the the uh, my analysis of this in, in the book is that is a really after the end of the Cold War, we began to, re to 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 lose our strategic competence. And remember, the, of course, the Cold War uh, was followed rapidly. The you know, the the, the uh, lifting of travel restriction between East Germany and West Germany precipitated the really the the end of East Germany, the, the, the continued stress on the Soviet Union, its ultimate collapse. And of course, that was a reason for optimism. Right. As you recall, President George H. W. Bush said that he hoped now that, that, that the rule of law would, would govern intercourse between nations um, rather than the rule of the, of the jungle. Of course, that was followed quite rapidly by a hot war uh, in, 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 uh, in, uh, in the Persian Gulf and, and a lopsided victory over the fourth largest army in the world, Saddam Hussein's, Saddam Hussein's army. And I think that bolstered our confidence even further. And through the 1990s, we based our foreign policy on three fundamental assumptions that turned out to be over-optimistic. And that first of these is that there's an arc of history that guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. 
a corollary to that, especially in connection with the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and China had not experienced this, you know, this orders of magnitude uh, growth uh, in, in its economy and the strengthening of its armed forces. And so we, we, we thought, thought you know, co- uh, great power competition is a relic of the past. Instead, that competition will be replaced by you know, global governance and a condominium of, 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 of nations who would work together on the world's greatest problems. And the third, uh, the third assumption was that the technological military prowess that we demonstrated in the Gulf War meant that, that if any country, if any adversary even had the temerity to challenge the United States, a future conflict would be fast, cheap, efficient, and, and relatively low cost. And, and, and these assumptions, I think, Brian, were a setup. They were a setup for, for the strategic shock of the mass murder attacks of 9-11 when al-Qaeda avoided our tremendous military advantages and, and adopted an asymmetric approach to, to, to mass murder uh, using box cutters and airplanes. And then the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I argue in the book that the cost and length of those wars, w- w- those wars were lengthened and they were more costly because we took a short-term approach to, to really what should have been long-term endeavors to consolidate military gains and get to, in both places, a sustainable political outcome consistent with our interests. And then and then, of course, you know, we have an, other shocks like the financial crisis and, and, and that pendulum swung in, in terms of the emotional impetus behind our foreign policy from over-optimism, you know, maybe hubris in the 90s, to pessimism and really resignation uh, in, in the 2000s. And, and so the book is largely an argument, well, how about something in between those two? How about really trying to understand these problem sets on their own terms and overcoming strategic narcissism, which is the assumption that either what we do or what we decide not to do is decisive to the outcome uh, and apply strategic empathy to view these complex challenges we and other uh, other free nations face today from the perspective of the other and to come and to try to understand these 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 uh, challenges on their own terms. Mm-hmm. How does that I mean, how does that apply in these conflicts, you know, running from Syria now to Afghanistan or, or even Western Pakistan, some would define it as right, is you, the what should our goal be, right? And, and, and I think one of the things that, that, that was a hallmark of your, your tenure in, as National Security Advisor was the 2017 National Security Strategy and sort of trying to lay out ends, ways, means in that sense. But I think one of the things that, that still frustrates me and frustrates other analysts that, are, that look at these problems is, is not knowing exactly what we're trying to accomplish in these places. And, and, and I don't know how we, we fix that problem. I mean, it, it requires real political leadership, um, you know, which is, the, which is, you know, we'll come back to this, but is, is there a tension there in your book between not wanting to talk about politics when politicians are setting those goals? Not, not really at all. And as you, as you know, have seen the book, I mean, I'm very critical of multiple administrations, including the Trump administration. And on your question of goals, I mean, it's really important to have a goal. It's really important to have objectives because otherwise you're like Alice in Wonderland, any path will get you there. <laughs> so so I, I think it, it is a disservice to our nation. It's a disservice certainly to the servicemen and women who are fighting in these wars if they don't understand really not only what are the goals and objectives, but what is the strategy? that aims to achieve those goals and objectives at an acceptable cost and risk. And so I, in, the, in the conclusion of the, of the book, uh, Battlegrounds, I, 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 I hearken back to the book I wrote on Vietnam, and, and I, I discussed the lessons I brought with me into that job. It was kind of a surreal feeling, you know, walking into McGeorge Bundy's office, really, in the West Wing and having criticized national security decision-making and, and policy-making during the Vietnam War, to, to, to sort of, of course, have it dawn on me, well, now I'm in charge of that process. And, and so what we did, Brian, I described this in the, in the book, is we put in, in place a, a different step, right, a different step in formulating policy and strategy. Typically, as you know, in Washington, you know, I mean, at least oftentimes, these policy and strategies are generated bottom-up kind of from the bureaucracy, right, from these working groups that are convened around what's called the Policy Coordinating Committee. And, and it's sort of like the equivalent of, oh, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, discuss. <laughs> and, then, and then you have this bottom-up process during which all types of satisficing behavior and lowest common denominator uh, compromises happen, and you get what, what I would call policy pablum. 
And so what we tried to do instead is to focus a, a framing session, a framing session on a five-page hard-hitting paper that described the challenge that we're facing on its own terms, to view that challenge through the lens of our vital interests and to establish an, an overarching goal and more specific objectives. But then crucially, I think, to make some assumptions, to make assumptions that typically in a planning process are implicit and oftentimes flawed, to make these assumptions explicit and test them and have conversation about, about them, and especially assumptions involving the degree to which we have ownership, influence, control, you know, agency, we being the United States and like-minded partners over this challenge. And, then, and, and, uh, and I think that process worked. You know, I think we put in some pla into place some pretty significant shifts in U.S. policies, shifts that were long overdue. And, um, and, and that, that framing session allowed then the principals around the table to get some top-down guidance to that policy coordinating committee. Once we had that discussion, I would bring it to the president and say, you know, hey, uh, here's, here's how we framed it. Do you agree with these objectives? Put out a cabinet memo and start on it. Now, now none of these strategies were perfect. Uh, all of them, of course, like all strategies, were imperfectly implemented. And sadly, you know, as I tell the story of the, of the, the South Asia strategy, for example, uh, as well as, as strategies that are relevant to the really the humanitarian and political catastrophe in the greater Middle East, um, these were abandoned, I believe, prematurely. I think for uh, in, in both those cases, we had in place the, for the first time a sustainable long-term approach to this long-term problem set. And, uh, and of course, uh, now what we have is, I think, a, a, a really bias in favor of disengagement as an unmitigated good uh, fr from, uh, from these complex competitions. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I think this is where the the sort of rubber hits the road on this notion of, um, you know, going from that strategic hubris to that disillusionment. I mean, because I think you're right. I mean, a lot of Americans across the political spectrum are are frustrated about you know the war, the war, the way the war in Iraq and the wars in Afghanistan have gone and dragged out. You know, how do you make the case that, that we should continue these when that I, I do feel like we don't have a clear right, goal in right, mind? Yeah. And well, well, you know, the, I think there was there were clear goals in mind when we did put these strategies in place. I, as I mentioned, I think they were long overdue, but they came in the 17th year of the war. Right. And um, and, you know, what, what I often say about about the, the war in Afghanistan, it's not a 19 year old, 19 year, year war. It's a. It's a one-year war, you know, 19 times over, right? And and uh, and and so I don't, I don't blame the American people for losing confidence in the effort, for you know the so-called war weariness and so forth. I, I blame our, our leaders for not explaining to the American people really the two the two the, the, you know the two fundamental things that the American people need to know. First of all, it's what is at stake, what's in it for us, why do we care? And I think to answer your question on what the goal is, the goal is to ensure that jihadist terrorist organizations never again have the capability, the, the capacity to commit mass murder uh, uh, you know, on U.S. soil or against U.S. interests abroad the way that they did on September 11th, killing nearly th you know, 3,000 innocents and taking trillions of dollars out of our, our economy. And the only way, to, I think, to do that is to be engaged with those who we are enabling to take the brunt of that fight. So in Afghanistan, for example, that means, that requires hardening the Afghan state and its security forces against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban, who, by the way, are, <laughs> are, are not separate from these other terrorist groups in this terrorist ecosystem uh, that, that, that exists uh, between Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. And so whereas it, it, is, it, it, it requires sacrifice, we've had 10 courageous U.S. servicemen killed in action uh, in Afghanistan this year, but it's worth noting that 30 Afghan soldiers and police die every day fighting to preserve the freedoms that they that we help them win uh, by kicking the Taliban out, out of power uh, in November, December of, of 2000 and 2001. And so I, I think it's it's important for us to explain that to the American people. But our leaders aren't doing it, Brian. Right. So so we tend to to look at the lack of popular support for these efforts overseas as immutable. Well, actually. If leaders were leading and explaining what's at stake and explaining what the strategy is, I think Americans are willing to sacrifice. I know, you know, our, you know, our, our uh, former colleagues in the armed forces are, 
um, if, if they understand how those sacrifices are contributing to a worthy outcome. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that how do you assess the threat today? Because there has been con- conflicting reports over the last even several weeks about the, the strength of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, the strength of, of you know, the ability of the Islamic State to, to regenerate. How do you assess the strength of these organizations today relative to the, you know, the last well, well, Brian, know, I'll, years Brian, in Brian, I'll ask, I'll ask you the same question. I'll give you my perspective. I'd love to hear what you think about it because you're monitoring all different sources of information, you know, uh, by skimming social media and understanding the activity of terrorist organizations in, in, that, in that space. I think that, that jihadist terrorist organizations are more dangerous today than they were on September 10th, 2001. And I think the reasons for that are threefold. The first is that they are orders of magnitude larger than the Mujahideen era alumni who committed the mass murder attacks of 9-11. Now we have Al-Qaeda alumni. We have ISIS alumni. And by the way, these alumni are much more mobile. Uh, They've moved pretty heavily into Europe, into countries uh, that that, that don't have visa requirements for travel to to North America, for example. And then... And then uh, the second reason is that these groups now have access to much more destructive capabilities. Jihadist terrorists are working very, very hard to gain the destructive power previously associated only with nation states. Those include bioweapons, as we can see, that could be pretty scary and and potentially effective against us. Uh, Chemical weapons, uh, obviously, but but, dirty bombs. I think we ought to be maybe even surprised that there hasn't one, one that hasn't already gone off in a city somewhere. Um, And and then, of course, going after the most destructive weapons on Earth uh, as well, which is one of the reasons why Pakistan is a scary place. Right. Uh, So so I think that they have access to more destructive uh, capabilities. This is what some people have called the democratization of destruction. Uh, And and then and then thirdly. You know, these uh, these groups could gain in strength because we are appear to be so determined uh, really across the political spectrum to disengage. Right. And. And, and I think we will undervalue the importance of the work that we're doing every day to develop a better intelligence picture and to, to, to keep the pressure on to, to attack these organizations uh, that, uh, that would otherwise do us harm. Now, the, uh, the, of course, this is, this is a short-term insurance policy. To, to get back to the question you asked earlier, okay, what does winning look like and what's the objective? The objective is to defeat these organizations and that's going to require a longer-term effort. That's going to require not only cutting them off from sources of physical and financial support, but also sources of ideological support. The long-term battleground in this war, I believe, Brian, is education. Because when I look at when I look at these at these uh, these enemies of all humanity, uh, what they do is they use ignorance to foment hatred and hatred to justify violence against innocence. And uh, and so what, what's re- what's required is to break that cycle of, of, of violence uh, and help bring people together. And part of these solutions are local. Part of them are, is regional. I think these Abraham Accords, actually, that is a really, really important development to recognize. I mean, I love the name of it. Right? We are all people of the book. Those who try to 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 to, to cloak uh, their criminal agendas and, and, and their, their, their criminal acts under the, the false mantle of religion, I think this is going to make it harder for them. I think that uh, Saudi Arabia's at least, you know, at least explicit commitment, and, and I hope heartfelt and genuine commitment, to combat the Salafist jihadist ideology that lays the foundation for, for recruiting for these terrorist organizations and the brainwashing of, of young, vulnerable people uh, such that they are dehumanized and then, and then weaponized against their fellow human beings. Um, so I... I I, I think that we have a long-term uh, effort that we have to continue to, to focus on and improve. But in the short term, our, our military efforts, not with us necessarily directly going against these organizations, but enabling those who really have the most at risk in places like in Af- Afghanistan uh, and, uh, and in Syria and Iraq. I think that's a sound approach in the Sahel, for example, as part of a multinational effort in Somalia, as you know, the ongoing operations there. It sounds like a lot, right? It sounds like, wow, do we really want to keep stick with this? Well, you know, it's hard, it's hard to prove a negative, but I, I, but I, I, I am confident. I, in fact, I think I know that we have prevented devastating attacks 
uh, ba- based on the, the operations and efforts we've conducted since 9-11. Yeah, I, I think the um, well, I th- I, two questions. One is, I mean, I think that where where folks come from is they say, well, look, if we've been engaged in these fights, and and where there where where the the critique that I hear is, people say, well, we've been engaged in these fights, and yet the problem is worse. So is that the right approach? And and this this sort of second one is how do we balance this containment of these of these threats? And the effort required there within this larger geopolitical frame, I'm pivoting a little bit to this larger geopolitical frame that you speak about with Russia and China, and make sure that the investments we're making there don't keep us from acknowledging and understanding and, and dealing with those larger issues. Well, I would say that the, the problem gets worse when we do disengage. So it, it, I tell the story of, of uh, the Obama administration really anxious to disengage, uh, both from Iraq and Afghanistan, an administration that... And listen, look, I'm a nonpartisan guy. I'm just trying to look at this from a, a, a historical perspective. It was an administration, I think it's fair to say, that that defined its foreign policy mainly based on the president's opposition to the Iraq war, right? And, and you know, he initially called Afghanistan the good war. But in 2009, after a very lengthy review of the Afghan strategy, painful review because we're all waiting, okay, what are we going to do in this war? Um this the strategy comes out that is based on fantasy. I mean, it's it's a, it was an exercise in self delusion, and and this was this this idea that there's a bold line between the Taliban and these other jihadist terrorist groups that Al Qaeda, to quote President Obama, is a shadow of its former self, and that therefore uh, we can we can begin to disengage. And what's really most important is Al Qaeda in Pakistan, and therefore we will have a very close relationship with the Pakistanis and work on Al Qaeda there. Well. There were so many flaws in that in that argument. First of all, there was no bold line between the Taliban and, and Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda wasn't a shadow of its former self. You recall in 2015, we had that large operation, Shorebuck Farms in Kandahar, you know, a massive, the largest ever detected Al-Qaeda training facility, guarded, run, administered by the Taliban. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, you know, the, the whole thing was a fantasy. The Pakistanis were not going to change their behavior. The ISI is driven mainly by its fear of India, uh, and its use of these terrorist organizations as an arm of its foreign policy since 1948. And so it was it was an unsound policy. What's striking in the, in the story that I tell in Battlegrounds is the Trump administration has replicated that almost precisely, al- almost all of those flaws. And and it was really after that, Brian, it was, at, it was during that period of disengagement where the problem really became s- severe. Uh, it was severe before that, but 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 in, in, Af- in Afghanistan. Because in that 2009 speech, President Obama says, okay, we're going to reinforce the effort. But he announces the withdrawal timeline at the same time. So if war really is a contest of wills and you're the Taliban, what do you do? You know, you just, you just wait it out, right? And, and so I would say that that's very similar as well to December 2011. Uh, Vice President Biden calls up President Obama and says, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war, right? What happens after that? Prime Minister Maliki, who is no longer really countered by U.S. diplomatic as well as military influence, adopts these sectarian policies. There's a return of large-scale sectarian violence. ISIS doesn't come out of nowhere, right? ISIS comes out of the prisoner releases combined with the Sunni community feeling beleaguered and thinking the only way that they can protect themselves is through violence. And so ISIS becomes a patron and a protector. And they're welcomed in by at least portions of the population. That's really what happens. And so then you have, by 2014, you know, the, the most brutal terrorist group in history, the most murderous terrorist group in history, creating the biggest refugee crisis since the end of World War II and in control of territory the size of Britain. Well, the war wasn't over. Think about Libya, right? In, in, in Libya, in the Obama administration's effort to, 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 uh, to, to not replicate what they viewed as the mistakes of the Bush administration, they actually exceeded them by doing nothing to shape the, the, the political outcome in the wake of Gaddafi's collapse, much like the Bush administration under underappreciated, under undervalued the importance of consolidating gains politically in the wake of Saddam Hussein's uh, you know, uh, the collapse of his government, the Baathist government. So I could go on about this, but what I'm concerned about is we haven't learned the lesson, right? And in fact, our, 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 our attribution of our, uh, uh, to the cause that we attribute 
uh, to our our you know our frustration there is exactly kind of in many ways the opposite of the true cause, which is the short term mentality uh, applied to a long term problem. Mm-hmm. So how do you? Yeah, I think it's well. Let me divert. I want to come back to this issue of how do we balance the, this effort with this large with our larger sort of strategy towards you know, geopolitical adversaries, Russia, China, et cetera. Well, let, let, me just, let me just qualify this quickly, though, Brian. I just want to say, I, I'm not arguing for hundreds of thousands of troops, right? I mean, when, when President Trump said, hey, we're getting out of Syria, right? He was talking about 300 soldiers, 300 soldiers, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, of course, the, whether it's 11,500 or 8,500 or 500 in Afghanistan, all we do is talk about these numbers. It, that doesn't matter. That, that's minuscule compared to the deployment of troops, you know, for example, on the Korean Peninsula since, you know, since 1953, for example. And, and so it is a sustainable commitment, I, I, I believe. And we tend, we, we're talking ourselves, ourselves out of it. We're talking ourselves into war weariness and into a precipitous withdrawal that we're going to pay for later. I believe we're going to pay for it later, right? I mean, if, if the al-Qaeda in Iraq really sees out of prison, formed the backbone, as you know, because you tracked all this, of ISIS, and, you're, and you've written about it. Uh, how about these, these Taliban that we just released in, in Afghanistan? What, what are they going to do? And, and uh, so I, I, I think that, that we're going to reap the whirlwind on this one. Is it your view that, that I mean, you know, I, I, you, you're, you're clearly concerned about the, the, the sort of tendency of the Obama administration and the Trump administration on some level to to pull out of of uh, or, or reduce our commitment in in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, there also seems to be a sort of an instinct to withdraw from from Europe, um, a conflict with NATO allies. Um, we we didn't do the the TPP in uh, in, in Asia. Um, how does this sort of instinct to withdraw manifest within the Trump administration? Because it seems like it's a different. You know, we may get to a similar outcome, but it seems like it's a different instinct than what motivated the Obama administration. Or maybe that maybe that's wrong. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, there, there's a, there's a point at which, you know, uh, conservative kind of isolationism meets democratic, you know, liberal retrenchment, right? And and uh, I, I write about this in the in the conclusion of Battlegrounds. What is really the intellectual impetus behind uh, the, this this uh, the, this movement to disengage or the argument for disengagement? And uh, and I think it's a combination on, on the you know on the left maybe you could say of of really kind of the the dominance of the new left interpretation of history, in which and I'm for, I'm oversimplifying here and I don't mean to offend anybody but yeah, I mean I, it's essentially that all the ills of the world prior to 1945 are due to colonialism, all of the ills of the world after 1945 are due to communist or capitalist imperialism, and and, and therefore uh, we are the problem and if we disengage from these complex areas the situation will get better right. Now, now that is almost the same argument, right? Uh, on on the on the right uh, as well, you know. And this would be, you know, this would be the you know, the so-called realist school, right? Who who argue that that the U.S. Uh, efforts overseas have been in pursuit of liberal hegemony, right? This is a straw man that they set up, and this realist school is actually an ideological school uh, because they see our disengagement from every problem as, as an unmitigated good. Because again, we are the problem. And, uh, and and so I, it's not a partisan problem. I think it cuts across both political parties. And this is why you have, you know, you have uh, you, you have uh, unusual bedfellows, strange bedfellows of, of, of George Soros and, and, and Charles Koch, right, funding uh, some of these kind of uh, pseudo think tanks that are popping up that are making this this argument for disengagement as, as an unmitigated good. In, in your experience, I mean, you you helped lay out these strategies and you and yet it you know you you reflect in the book that president trump didn't always follow through on these um on some of the the, the this guidance Wh- what's motivating president trump in these in these engagements you know in europe with potential allies on the in the pacific rim and south asia um around some of these larger you know geopolitical adversaries that you identify russia and china yeah, well, you know, there, there's the conventional wisdom, you know, because the president's language is often offensive to allies, right, and, and creates strains and alliances at the at the public level. The conventional wisdom is that there's, you know, there's very little coordination or international effort ongoing 
to confront either Russian uh, aggression in the form of cyber-enabled information operations, really a sustained campaign of political subversion against Europe and the United States and against his own opposition figures, you know, as well, as well as we see as the poisoning of, of Navalny. Um, and, and, uh, and, and with China, that there's a lack of international cooperation there. Actually, that's not true, I don't think. In reality, there's a very high degree of international cooperation on both problem sets. Now, both problem, problem sets are different. The, the problem and challenge associated with the Chinese Communist Party and its aggressive actions, much different from, from the, the problem associated with, uh, with Putin and, and Russia, uh, you know, Ch China has has real power, economic power, military power uh, that, that can that can rival the United States and 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 help them pursue this goal. I think of of establishing exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific and then and then challenging the U.S. globally, both from an economic as well as from a security uh, standpoint. Whereas Russia just doesn't have those those resources available, and and therefore rather than then you know, then then collapsing the existing order and replacing it with a new one more favorable to Chinese interests. On so in the case of the the, the the Chinese Communist Party, Russia is just trying to drag everybody else down. Right. So if they can't be stronger themselves, they're going to drag everybody else down. So essentially, Vladimir Putin is is the figure, to, you know, the, the last man standing, right, in, in in Europe. And and there is a high degree of of international cooperation, I think, ongoing now, especially especially after the recent sort of aggressive actions by China. So if I can just go to, let me just go to China. I know, I know probably a lot of, so a lot of people's minds, but I think there are three elements of what, what I describe in the book is I try to describe what are the emotions, the aspirations, and the ideology that drive and constrain Chinese Communist Party leaders. This is an effort to really get a strategic empathy as, uh, you know, as a cure you know, for strategic narcissism, right? And, and, uh, and, and, and what I, I think today, at least just to, to bring it up to what you see in the news and what people are talking about today, there are three misunderstandings about the nature of the competition with China. The first of these is that, you know, this is really just a U.S.-China problem, you know, because, you know, the Trump administration is so mean, right, that Xi Jinping has to, you know, has to respond. Well, I mean, actually, I don't see that as the case at all. I think the onus on, on, in terms of the, and the blame for the deterioration, you know, in the relationship is, is on the Chinese Communist Party and has everything to do with the shift in, in first Hu Jintao's uh, leadership, but then especially Xi Jinping, and and it's based really on the on the party's desire, right? This desire to to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power internally, and to export its export export its uh, you know its its uh, statist uh, authoritarian mercantilist model, you know, ex externally. And how can it be a U.S. you know China problem if? You know, if, if it is China that, you know, that if, you know, the, the repression of the news of human to human transmission for COVID-19, the, the subversion of the World Health Organization, the wolf warrior diplomacy aimed, you know, at Europe and the United States to added insult to injury, you know, the, the, the cyber espionage campaign against our medical research facilities and hospitals in the middle of a pandemic, you know, the massive cyber attacks, which I'm sure you're tracking on in, in Australia, but, but really globally, you know, the, the bludgeoning to death of, of, uh, of Indian soldiers on the Himalayan frontier, uh, the, you know, the acceleration of the, you know, the greatest land grab, so to speak, in history in the South China Sea, the threats to Taiwan. Okay, I could go on, right? <laughs> Cultural genocide campaign in Xinjiang. Is that, that's probably not Donald Trump's fault. I don't think that's the U.S.'s fault. And so what we have, I believe, is a free world China, Chinese Communist Party problem. Uh, and, and what's extremely important is for us to convince the, the leadership that they can have enough without pursuing these aggressive policies that, that undercut you know, our, our interests and, and our security and, and our prosperity. The, the second myth is, you know, is this lack of international cooperation. There's a very high degree of international cooperation on, for example, cyber, which I'm sure you tracked in December 2018. Brian, that was unprecedented, those indictments and sanctions against APT10, you know, the main Chinese hacking uh, organization. I think it was 12, was 12, 14 countries, you know, simultaneously. We're working extremely well with Japan right now. And it's sad to see President Abe go. I mean, I think that May have been the closest relationship we've ever had, you know, with Japan, um, and and the Quad is kind of coming together, which is this format of Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S. And there, you know, India had been kind of a reluctant partner there until they they really had to come face to face with with the party's increasing uh, aggression, aggression and, and hostility, Chinese Communist Party's hostility, and and um, and so I could go I could go on about that. So that's that's the the, se the second myth, and the third is that there's this Thucydides trap, right? That 
a, a, the only choice we have, Brian, with China is either to lie supine, <laughs> to be passive, and 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 and, and accommodate uh, their their aggression, uh, or to go toward confrontation. And what I believe was happening because we weren't actively competing is we were on a path to comp- to, to confrontation before. So so I I mean I, I'm sure there'll be more questions about this, but I think. What historians will look back at the Trump administration with all its flaws and say that they enacted a bipartisan shift in U.S. foreign policy on China that was the most significant shift in foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. Wow. So I, I'm, go- I'm looking at some of our, our audience questions now, and I'm going to try to you've, – you've, you've addressed some of them. But um, let's ask this question about, about you know – Dealing with cyber terrorism, dealing with cyber threats, do you think that we have a solid whole of government, whole of society approach to these kinds of threats, which manifest in a variety of different ways? I mean, that that, that phrase is almost too large and flexible, everything from, you know, terrorists operating on the Internet to um, to to true cyber disruptive activities by a, by nation states. Do you feel like we've got a handle on this? Yeah. So, right yeah, so Brian, how about if I take a short answer attack at this and maybe you add your perspective from where you are? I think the way that the question is crafted is, is immensely important because it isn't just a government approach. It's a, it has to be it does have to be a whole society approach. And I think what we've seen with various cyber threats from jihadist terrorist organizations, for example, who are becoming more capable to the most high end capable powers, which are China and Russia, uh, is that is that each of them pose slightly different threats. I think with China. The principal threat seems to be cyber-enabled industrial espionage uh, with Russia. Uh, it is cyber-enabled information warfare as well as threats to direct threats to infrastructure. Uh, with North Korea, uh, they're probably the best at cyber crime. And, and, and Iran is also trying to perfect its ability to go after infrastructure, whether it's financial uh, infrastructure as they attacked this, what, 2007, I think it was, Brian, uh, or, uh, or the attacks that they demonstrated on Aramco. Uh, these, I, I think, I think the, the threats, uh, you know, we have to, cyber threats are in various categories, different adversaries, rivals, enemies, you, you know, have, have different competitive strengths and uh, relative strengths and weaknesses. And so what we need, you know, what we need is, is, is really what, what, uh, some have called, you know, a, a, uh, you know, an active layered defense, certainly. And I think what we recognized, uh, you know, in this, in the administration, when I joined it and I, I'm happy that, that I was able to, to help you know, get in place changes in policy that, that recognize that you can't have a, a good defense in cyberspace without a good offense. And I write about this in Battlegrounds, and I speculate, Brian, and this is, this is not that I advocate for it, uh, that, that, that the private sector is going to have to also really begin to develop more and more kind of cyber reconnaissance uh, and offensive capabilities potentially you know, as well, because as you know, with the large surface areas we're trying to defend in cyberspace, there's no way to be exclusively defensive uh, and, and, to, and to survive really a sustained attack o- o- over time. The other, the other aspect of this fight is, I mean, it's never going to be over, right? It will never be over. As you know, you know, every time you develop a countermeasure, your adversaries are trying to get around it. So it's going to be this continuous interaction, this continuous intense competition. But what I try to emphasize in the, in the, in the book is the need for us to protect our infrastructure and protect our national security innovation base. And it has to be a public and and private sector effort. It must be. And we have to design systems that degrade gracefully rather than fail catastrophically. And, uh, and, and so I, I think there's a defensive aspect to this. There's an offensive aspect to this, but what's I think concerning me on the horizon, Brian, is that it is possible to deter not just through, counteractions in cyberspace, but the broad range of other actions that are available from law enforcement to, I mean, military efforts, potentially, uh, a state-based adversary, because you can hold something of value to that state at risk, right? Now, these non-state actors, I mean, they might think, yeah, I've got nothing to lose, right? And, and, and so, the, so it's very difficult to deter, I think, cyber actors uh, who are part of, of transnational organizations, you know, non-state cyber uh, actors. So, Brian, what's your assessment of of where we are on on cyber and and the threats and and what we're doing to counter them? Well, I think it depends on how you think about the the threat. I mean, based on my sort of historical experience, I, I, you know, when I was teaching at West Point, 
15 years ago, we were uh, tracking uh, the way that terrorist organizations were using the internet. And that was before the rise of social media and, and, and the sort of the way that that conversation happens today. Um, and so that's one, that's one sort of aspect of it. And, and I do think that oftentimes we, um, we bias towards the recent and think that everything is new when in fact, many of these dynamics are older and reflect, you know, um, historical trends. I'm thinking of Thomas, Thomas Ridd's book, Active Measures about some of these kinds of dynamics. Um, one of the questions that has been asked here is, are you concerned that that Russia, China, I mean, we, you've been very clear about the efforts of the Russians in the 2016 election to impact that election. Are you concerned that these sort of state actors will have a, a real impact on our election that's, you know, ongoing right now? I mean, we are in prime election season. You, you, know, you know, Brian, we, we, we stood up, uh, as you know, new organizations uh, one of which is, you know, is headquartered kind of at the, at the Department of, at the, uh, of Homeland Security that have fostered, I think, some really good actions and some really important, uh, not only public-private partnerships, which I'm sure you're, you're much more aware of than I, than I am, uh, but also partnerships between federal and state governments to secure election infrastructure. I think that's gone extremely well. I think what also has gone extremely well is what we saw as, as, as a stark contrast between our ability to defend our election broadly in 2016 versus 2018. By 2018, we, we, we got ahead of the curve. Now, of course, that means the Russians are going to come back at us in different ways. And I think what's most important, as you alluded to, is not maybe the attack on the election itself, but the attack on our confidence in the result, right? And what Russia wants to do more than anything is to, is to shake our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And you know what, Brian? We're our own worst enemies because we're making it easy for them. Our political leaders are making it easy for them. President Trump, but also the opposition, right? So when you have President Trump saying, you know, hey, you know, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to respect the, the, the election. That's terrible. When you have Vice President Biden saying, well, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are going to go in and march around the White House. I mean, what does that say for our democracy? I mean, we have to... We ought to tell all of our leaders, please do not be part of the problem. You know, please be part of the solution and help restore confidence in, in our in our in our democracy rather than help undermine it and create an opportunity for Vladimir Putin and others who want to create this crisis of confidence. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm uh, struck by and I tell the story in the book, Brian, and this is something you've probably tracked very closely, is that after the 2016 election, the Internet Research Agency activity went way up after the election. People don't realize that. They don't talk about that. And, and, and the, the Kremlin had a whole, you know, they had a whole information campaign ready to go because I think they were as, as surprised as Donald Trump was, frankly, when he won the election. Right? <laughs> the, the, so the disinformation campaign, as you know, they actually released it before the, before the end of the election that, hey, Hillary Clinton stole the election from Donald Trump. That was their narrative. Well, they had to reel that back in really quick and twist it to, oh, hey, Donald Trump would have won the popular vote if it wasn't for, you know, a rigged election. And then what they did is they started to put their money and their bot and troll traffic behind the resist movement, the not my president movement, you know, and just like they do on other hot button issues like, you know, like gun control or immigration. They support both extremes. Right. And, and try to pull us apart from each other. And thanks to social media, you know, uh, present company you know, accepted <laughs> is that, is that, you know, social media is part of the problem, man, a big part of the problem, especially the algorithms that present material to entice you to click more and more and to get more advertising money. And the way to do that is to show you more and more extreme content that reinforces your existing beliefs rather than provides you with any kind of one set of facts, right. Uh, that, that we can all begin a civil discussion on. So I, I really think, that we are, are our own worst enemies in a number of ways. Our political leadership, I think, is not helping at this stage. And I think social media is, is a big part of the problem. Is this, what's the biggest, you know, this comes from an audience question as well. What is the biggest threat to U.S. democracy now? Is it our lack of confidence in our electoral systems? Is it pressure from the Russians? Is it the, the geopolitical rise of, the, of China? Is it you know, the continued threat of, of terrorism? I would say it's education, Brian. 
You know, I, I, in, in the conclusion of the of Battlegrounds, I, you know, I, I quote my friend, Zach Shore, uh, the, the historian from, you know, from whom I, I borrowed the term strategic empathy. You know, he's a professor at Berkeley. He's a the guy's a brilliant historian, you know, and just an all around great person. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the greatest strength of a nation is an educated populace. And if you think about really those who are most vitriolic right, in today's discourse are those who know the least about problem sets. This is why the Commonwealth Club, this is why, you know, the, the Commonwealth Club is part of the solution. You know, these sort of organizations that, that help us educate each other, that bring us together for civil discussions, you know, where, where we can explore issues in depth, where we're tolerant of other people's views. I mean, I think the, these venues are more important now than, than ever. And I think what we really have to take a hard look at, Brian, I mean, is, is, is uh, civics education and history, how we teach history. It should be possible. It should be possible to have faith and pride, pride. I, I quote Richard Rorty in, in, uh, in, in the uh, conclusion that, you know, that, that pride is to nations like self-respect is to individuals. A, a, a necessary condition for self-improvement, right? And so it should be possible to celebrate this great experiment in governance that, that was manifested in our revolution, that was manifested in, 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 the, in the principles, in our Declaration of Independence, in our Constitution, but to also recognize the imperfections in, in that great experiment and the, and the fact that it took us almost 100 years to reconcile the greatest contradiction and, and the greatest blight on our history, which was slavery. But then we should celebrate. Shouldn't we celebrate the emancipation of 4 million Americans in our most destructive war of history? Yes. Should we also be disappointed, though, about Jim Crow, the rise of Ku Klux, Klux Klan, you know, the, the de jure you know, imposition of inequality in, in, in the post-Civil War period and the failure of Reconstruction? Should we also be disappointed? Yes, we should, about separate but equal. But can we also then celebrate the civil rights movement and the dismantlement of de jure you know, segregation and, and inequality of opportunity? recognizing that de facto it still occurs today and that we have a hell of a lot of work to do in a, in a lot of areas. I think it is possible to do both, right? But now, now I think that there is this, you know, th this mentality associated with an interaction of, you know, identity politics and bigotry and racism and, and all of this happening in a toxic you know, information environment that is pulling us apart from each other. I mean, if you believe one thing, you know, you, you watch one cable news station. If you believe another thing, you watch a different cable news station. And so I, I just think all of us have a role, whether it's in academia, whether it's in civil society, whether it's in the Commonwealth Club, whether it's at Facebook, we all have to bring people together. And I think we, we ought to come together maybe first and foremost, as I mentioned, around some sort of an agenda for educational reform. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more about this issue of, of education being central to, to our national security future. From my perspective, it's sort of like, you know, when we don't unlock all of the potential of our society, of our fellow citizens, you know, how are we going to compete on the international stage when we're, you know, fighting with one arm tied behind our back, which is what you do when you don't educate a bunch of smart, capable kids to the extent that you ought to. Um, the, how do we get there, though? Right. Because there is right now there is a like a visceral, per, you know, we always think everybody always says it's the most important election of our lifetimes. Right. Like that happens every four years. But we're in the midst of this incredibly visceral electoral process. And you're appealing back to the better angels of our nature, back to our institutions, back to those, you know, back to good faith implementation of you know, checks and balances. Um, and how do we get there when, when we've got adversaries pushing on this and we've got, you know, domestic leaders that, that may feel an incentive not to buy into those, those institutions. You know, Brian, I've got a theory about this. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to hear what the Commonwealth club membership thinks about this. Right. You know, I think, we're, I think, I think we're better off than we think we are. Because I believe that our elites and our media and, and, the, and the environment of social media is more polarized than most actual Americans, right? And, and I also believe, therefore, that we have to be the solution, right? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm all for at this stage, you know, not paying attention to the politicians except to demand better of them. And we should demand better of them. 
there are some good organizations, as you know. There's that, that one organization that recruits uh, that recruits veterans to run for office, uh, but then also makes them pledge to be to be bipartisan and to you know and to introduce you know bipartisan legislation in their first term as congressman or woman. I mean, there there are all these nascent movements now. I think to for us to come together. Now, what's terrible is we, we're in the middle of a triple crisis, right? We have the we have the pandemic. We have the recession associated with the pandemic. We have the divisions in our society laid bare by initially George Floyd's murder and now the you know Breonna Taylor the, the verdict and 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 uh and how the issues have come to the fore of especially inequality of opportunity and unequal treatment under the law and by law enforcement and, and so it's happening at a time where we're not coming together right and and I make an argument in the book you know to, that we ought to be coming together you know in in clubs and on basketball courts and rugby pitches and you know in faculty lounges or whatever uh, so we need to do that as best we can, you know, uh, you know, on Zoom or, you know, on, on, on you know, social media. But I think we need to have these conversations ourselves. We need to take ownership of it. I think we ought to take a moment to celebrate what we do have going for us. You know, I mean, we do have a say in how we're governed. We really do. I mean, if you live in communist China, you don't. Right. So as imperfect as our system is, let's at least, I think, be grateful for what we do have. And then recognize that, hey, we, we all play a role in, in uh, you know, in, 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 in coming up with solutions to, to this problem of polarization and the divisiveness in our society, the, how worn our social fabric is and, and the concrete problems of maybe, you know, equal treatment by police uh, or or, you know, why, why, you know, how can we any, any longer tolerate that your, your your opportunity in life could be determined based on the zip code you're born in, uh, based on the on the quality of the education that that you have available to you. Right. So anyway, I, I think we can do it. You know, I'm, I, you know, as you know, I mean, uh, my whole career has been not just to passively accept this, you know, the current conditions, but to try to act on problems and, 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 and to, to shift our, 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 you know, our, you know, our situation to, to, to an improved situation or a better place, you know, so I think we can do it. One of the institutions in American society that polls always show is, is one of the most trusted is the military, right? And this is a place where we haven't replicated some of the post-Vietnam uh, divisions or at least antipathy towards the military that, that, that we saw in some circles. Um, what role is there for, you know, general off retired general officers like yourself in these roles? And and, and explain this a little bit within the context of your decision not as, a, as an officer not to vote in past elections. This is a tradition that I wasn't aware of as a civilian before I taught at West Point. And, and I, think, uh, I think the audience will be interested in that tradition. And then how do we rely on these folks that do have, do get a lot of respect from all aspects of American society without undermining the appropriate role and distinctions that we have between the civilians and the military. Well, you know, I'm an American historian, so I have to go back to like the time of the revolution, right? I, mean, I think we have to, you know, George Washington's, George Washington's grandparents fled the English civil war. And so it was very much on his mind from the beginning, all during the revolution and certainly during his presidency, that there could no, there had to be a, a bold line between the, the military and any kind of partisan politics. And you compound that, right? You compound that with our founders really, Concern over factions, and that goes back to the English Civil War as well. Federalist Ten, Madison wrote, wrote all about factions. Alexander Hamilton wrote extensively in the Federalist Papers about factions. And one of the lines I think from Hamilton was, "With factions comes violence." Right, and so so they feared the partisanship, and they feared the military being drug in into politics in a, in a partisan way. So I, you know, I took the example of George Marshall, right, who never voted, who was a paragon, I think, of military professionalism. You know, I think everybody should vote. I, I didn't expect that from even my fellow officers in, in our army, but it's a choice that I made to be studiously nonpartisan and, 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 to, and to communicate to really my soldiers and, and the institution, hey, this is what we are about. This is, this is an essential part of our military professionalism. What I'm concerned about, Brian, is, is even like retired officers getting drug into it could taint that, that reputation of, of the military. And it became fashionable in recent years right, to get long lists like, hey, here's my list of admirals and generals. Well, like, here's my list of admirals and generals. And so I refuse to participate in that because I think it's a danger. Now, I don't begrudge them doing it. They do whatever you, the heck you want when you're retired. But there is a danger associated with it. I'm also, you know, cognizant in the Bay Area here. 
we are very disconnected as a society, right, from, from those who fight and serve in our name. And so I would just encourage young men and women to join our armed forces. It is tremendously rewarding. The popu- popular culture has cheapened and coarsened, I think, our, our, our understanding of what it means to serve in the military. I would say that our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are warriors, but they're also humanitarians. I mean, they, they are engaged a- against the enemies of all civilized people. And, 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 and they demonstrate tremendous empathy and compassion uh, for, for those who, who are most at risk from these enemies that we're fighting today. Uh, and I would also just say that military service is important. I mean, I'm at the center of the Stanford campus here today that doesn't even have an ROTC program. You know, I mean, how is that possible these days, right? Um, you know, I, I think the benefit of it is that you see young men and women walking around maybe in uniform a couple times a week, and some other members of the student body might say, God, what are those, what are those people doing? Maybe, maybe I ought to look into that, you know? Um, and, and, of course, there's not a military presence in the Bay Area after the Presidio closing, really, not much of one. And so I think we have to fight to, to keep us connected to the military and then maybe, maybe talk to our young people about not just service in our military, but some form of service that brings us together across all walks of life. And what I love about our military is you see people come into the Army, right, and they bring with them. They bring with them all the prejudices, you know, uh, you know all, the, all the predispositions that, that, they, that they come from however they grew up, right? And then you just watch, the, you watch it melt away, right? Because you see that the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. You know, and when you're in, a, when you're in a, an organization like that that takes on the quality of a family, nobody's checking skin color, you know what I mean? No, nobody's, you know, checking somebody's religion. Nobody's checking their se- sexual orientation, right? You're, you're, you're there... Uh, as part of a family that is bound together by a common purpose, something bigger than yourself, mutual trust, and an ethos of honor and sacrifice. And and I think it's a great thing for our Army. Fewer and fewer young Americans can do it in our smaller professional force. But I would just ask members of the Commonwealth Club, please talk to young people about the rewards of service. Because popular culture, I think oftentimes, also looks at veterans as as traumatized, fragile human beings. I mean, I... I don't know if you saw the speech Vice President Biden um, made recently, you know, about a you know, soldier, that, a veteran that engaged in criminal activity. I'm just like, oh, I mean, that's, that's such a small minority. I mean, most soldiers emerge. We never want to you know, stigmatize combat trauma and all of, its, all of the, uh, you know, the negative uh, effects of it. But I think, I think Americans have a misunderstanding of, of what it means to be a veteran, who our veterans are. And uh, it's, un, it's unfortunate. General McChrystal has suggested a sort of year of national service, um, you know, a compulsory potentially year of national service. Um, is that an idea that what, what do you think about that? Yeah, idea? I think it's, it's a great idea. And actually, you know, I think making it voluntary first is a way to do it. What I found here at Stanford and I'm sure others members of the club have, there's a huge untapped desire to serve among our younger generation. You know, I mean, I guess when you get old, it, is it, it must be tradition, right, to disparage the younger generation. Hey, I'll tell you, I, I've yeah. I've met the most extraordinary. I've met I've met, <laughs> I've met the most extraordinary young people, not not in our army, obviously, but here at Stanford as well. They all want to make a difference. They all want to serve. So I, I you know, I, there was this national commission on 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 uh, on, on on service uh, that, that just completed its report. It's a very good report. I recommend it to the club if if you need help uh, finding it and sending it out to members. I'd be happy to provide the link to it. Uh, but but I think these you know this ought to this ought to be reflected in legislation. It also ought to be reflected, I think, in on college campuses and high schools and and really you know counselors should be talking to to students about hey if you want to serve you know here's how you can do it here's how you can make a difference in your community for your country internationally you know so so um, I think I think you're right I mean this is a way to bring us together as well as you know the initiatives in education. Yeah. I, I mean, the re- one of the reasons why I ask this question is, is, is I'm, I'm trying to get at this notion that, that you've suggested that education is really the heart of the fight in a lot of ways for our, for our country. And, and we've, we've, you know, and we have, there is, and yet we don't fund it, right? We don't, we don't invest in these things the way that we should. We do invest in the military and, you know, you could have endless debates as people do in Washington about what the right funding levels are there. And, you know, but but I, you know, there's sort of this this paradox that I'm wrestling with, with with, which is that we should have this focus and this respect and the centrality of the of the military because they do so much good work 
And yet I worry that we get to a point where they're the only folks that we we put on that pedestal when there are these other ways to serve. And you're pointing to that in some ways. And I, I don't know how we we square that circle, but it seems to me that that is important to square if we're going to address these larger institutional challenges. Well, we have a new respect for nurses and doctors these days, don't we? I mean, so I think, you know, how about how about essential workers, right? Who, as we, many of us, you know, can work from the comfort of our offices, right? They don't, they don't, they don't enjoy that luxury. And, uh, and they're more susceptible to con- contracting a deadly virus, you know, for example. So I, I do think this is an important point that we have to respect all forms of service. Two of, one of my daughters worked in the government and two of my daughters uh, were, did Teach for America. You know, and and um, and they, they all found it, these experiences to be tremendously rewarding. They did make a difference. Uh, and and um, and so, I, you know, I I think holding teachers up on a pedestal, you can't go wrong with that. My mother taught in inner city Philadelphia for 35 years. She made a huge difference, you know, every day there. So, you know, I, I think there are tr- there, as you're, you're right, tremendous opportunities to serve and a largely untapped desire to serve among our young people. So that's sounds like an opportunity to me. Yeah. You are now retired formally. Are you going to vote this time? <laughs> I'm, I'm having the discussion with my daughters and what a hell of a, you know, hell of an election to start voting in. Right. I mean, so, so, so uh, <laughs> you know, I think I will, Brian, I got, I've got to, I got to think it through. It's a big shift for me, right? This is my third career. This is really my third career. My first one was at a, at a famous restaurant uh, named McDonald's uh, where I was proudly, you know, employee of the month, three years, three, three months in a row, three months in a row. And then, uh, and then I went to West Point at age seventeen. So you've always been a star student. <laughs> so I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I think it's going to be. It, I'm going to consider it a civic duty to do it. Uh, I, I've just stayed so much out of domestic politics now. And man, I'll tell you, the incentives are pretty low to get involved at this point, right? I mean, in terms of how vitriolic it is and and and, and how divided we are, you know. But. Uh, but this feels like the tension, right? I, you know, we're, we're, we're closing at the end of the, the session. This feels like the tension to me in the way in the book, in, in Battlegrounds, is that you said, I don't want to write a political book, and you've walked through our grand strategy, and yet education is the number one threat. I mean, is there a tension there? No, I don't think so. When, you, when, I, when I say political, Brian, I mean partisan political, right? And what I lament in the book, whether it's on climate change, which I read about, as you know, not extensively, but, but you know, it's a significant part of the book, and these interconnected problems of climate and environment and water security and food security and, and health security, you know, we, we, we don't begin conversations ever with what we agree on, right? It's always about what we disagree on or what the polar extremes believe, right? So, so on climate, you, know, you either get climate deniers or you get Green New Deal. I mean, there has to be something in the middle, right? And so why don't we talk about, hey, climate change is bad. It's real. It's man-made. And we can do a hell of a lot about it now. Can we acknowledge that whatever solutions we come up with have to be practical and implementable in developing economies as well, right? Because, you know, as you know, you know, I mean, uh, you know, carbon emissions don't respect national borders, right? So, so I, I think that we can agree on some fundamentals. And there are some tremendously promising uh, tr- technologies, many of which are becoming much more economically feasible. And so, so anyway, I, I, I think the approach I took in the book is to not say these are, these are issues that have to be resolved through a political process, but let's not immediately go to our partisan corners. Let's start with the history of how these challenges develop, for example. So as you know, every, every first chapter in each part of the book begins with how the past produced the present as the first step in anticipating the future, right? And, and so I, I hope the book will be helpful to those who are interested in these challenges. And, and really, as I say in the, in the end of the conclusion, you know, it will have achieved its purpose if it helps bring us together around these crucial challenges so we can have civil discussions uh, and, and develop a, a better and more mutual understanding of how we can how we can build a better future for generations to come. I mean, that's it's, it's, it sounds ambitious, but I just want the book to play a small part in that. Yeah. So we've now reached the point in our program where there's, there's time for only one last question. And, and, and the question I'll ask is. In dereliction of duty, you were writing a history um, of of a, a time, and in, including national, the National Security Advisor. In people are going to begin writing histories of your time as National Security Advisor. How do you hope they understand your time there and your work? Well, I, I hope what they write is that I did my best to try to restore our strategic competence and to put in place 
shifts in U.S. policy that were in large measure overdue, but fundamentally sound and fundamentally nonpartisan. I think if you go to the December 2017, a highly readable national security strategy of the United States, <laughs> that, that, and if you do, if you do it a word well search, written, yeah. if you do a word search for America first and delete America first, I mean, you can put, you know, you can put whatever label you want on it. Right. I mean, I, I think it's, it is, it is a, it is a logical argument for what we need to do to protect our vital interests in the area of security, fostering prosperity and extending influence uh, of our free and open and democratic societies globally. So, uh, I hope that's what they'll say, and that I hope that they'll say that I did my best to give the president multiple options to avoid the pitfalls that I wrote about in Dereliction of Duty and to put together a process that best served the elected president and best served the nation. And and maybe in, maybe they'll say, in so doing, I got used up as a result, right? But I was at peace with that, Brian, as you know. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't there to get another job. You know, I wasn't there to, you know, as a springboard to something else or didn't want to try to keep that job to be in you know, a so-called influential or powerful position. I just wanted to do my duty. And when I was done, I would be done, you know? And, and, um, and I feel as if that our team, our team did as best job as we could in the, in that, in that year, uh, accomplished some, some very positive things. Uh, some, some of what, some of those efforts and policies are, are sustained and, and, and in a generally positive direction, others have been prematurely abandoned. Um, but I hope that's what they'll say is I gave it my best shot. <laughs> Our thanks once again to General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor under President Trump, senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and author of the new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, sponsored by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We also thank our viewing audience. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Brian Fishman, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.